Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation Leadership Mental Health podcast series, Changing Your Culture to Embed Mental Health and Wellbeing at the Heart of Education. These podcasts are part of a wider programme developed for ETF by the Association of Colleges, designed to create space for leaders to reflect on and share their journey towards self-awareness and positive mental health, including a trauma-informed approach. This project is based on the belief that, through listening, learning and leading by example, a culture shift may be embedded, starting from the top. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Alex Miles, who is the Managing Director of the Yorkshire Learning Providers. So welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining. Hi, thank you. So, Alex, if we can start off then by giving a bit of context to who you are and what you do, do you want to just roughly describe to us your area of experience in Yorkshire Learning Providers and the scale of what you deal with there? Yorkshire Learning Providers is a regional membership body of apprenticeship training providers and FE colleges and universities and careers services. And we support around 105 training organisations through representation, advocacy, CPD, staff development, IAG, quality support. So we are a membership body that supports the providers of apprenticeship and adult education delivery across Yorkshire. And we have also been an apprenticeship training provider in the past, um, but we decided to step back from the actual delivery and move more into the supporting function for training providers of all varieties. The training providers, I guess, come to me for their kind of safeguarding and prevent support. We have a safeguarding and prevent forum that we hold every quarter. And that's a real dedicated resource for providers that deliver apprenticeship and adult ed that traditionally are left out when support and CPD and training comes into place because it's about schools or full-time colleges. So my remit is very much to support the providers that don't necessarily get the support through mainstream, whether that's the ladder or the coordinators or some of the CPD. And I'm also the apprenticeship providers representative on the ETF safeguarding strategy group, I think it's called. Yeah, we sit on that. Yeah, we we do. And that's to really make sure that the voice and the representation of apprenticeship providers and adult ed providers isn't lost in the conversation when we are talking about you know, supporting students with mental health or supporting students with their needs, because actually sometimes apprentices are forgotten about when we talk about students. So my remit and the drum that I bang a lot is to make sure that I'm constantly saying and apprentices, don't forget about apprentices, they are still students, they are still learning, they are still in receipt of government and department funding and therefore have the right to the same level of support with their mental health or with their pastoral arrangements or enrichment arrangements. So that's, I guess, the the remit that I work with around kind of the safeguarding of of students, but it's very much from providing support for the provider so they can pass it forward to their students and making sure that the gaps, I guess, where the support isn't, I can fill those gaps. That's such important work. And I think I'm just going to give a shout out here to Education Training Foundation and Isabel King, because since she headed up safeguarding there, she has always said, and apps and adult ed. 
and is is a real champion of the whole sector and is very inclusive in that approach and that's been really refreshing and ne- indeed necessary as you as you know so it's a really interesting model then that you actually support other providers to support staff and students so tell us then in terms of mental health support how does that kind of work what kind of things would you do and what are the challenges that you face if we look at kind of apprenticeship or apprentices as the area of focus for this that every provider i speak to tells me that you know particularly post pandemic the type of student the type of apprentice the type of workplace that they're now dealing with is very very different and previously where apprenticeship providers would occasionally bring in resource to support mental health and particularly with adult apprentices where there was often that thought process of well it's not my job to support them there's HR function in the business or these are adults but actually the vast increase in the amount of mental health support that training providers are now having to put in place that used to be maybe referred out or used to be really infrequent is now one of the most frequent challenges that providers talk to me about and also the understanding of at what point do they step in because these are employed. We only spend 20% of our time with these students. But the amount of mental health support that is coming through from a range of things, whether that's self-harm, burnout, stress and anxiety, social anxiety, understanding the world of work and do I still have to work from my bedroom? What is hybrid working? Increased poverty issues in adult apprentices, obviously with the cost of living crisis, We've seen a lot of um, maybe the younger age apprentices with communication barriers, with lots of lost and missed learning or lost and missed opportunities to become social beings because of, you know, what they've been through. The increase in neurodiversity needs with apprentices is huge. And it's not really, we didn't really think of neurodivergent apprentices. I think it's been much more commonplace to talk about it in GFE and in schools than it has been in apprentices, but that's huge now. And the range of reasonable adjustments and the types of knowledge, training providers just don't have that knowledge, that skill set. So what we're trying to do is bring resources, share practice, bring in experts. We did a range of CPD, we called it Wellfest. So it was a wellbeing festival, but it was aimed at practitioners. So it was so practitioner skill sets could up, whether that's like I said, burnout and stress, whether that's suicide, whether that's understanding how to support apprentices in the workplace, which is a really difficult part of safeguarding and understanding where your remit sits and at what point you sit in. So a lot of it is around just bringing practitioners together and talking about it. We've since set up a safeguarding forum, like I said, dedicated to apprenticeship and work-based learning providers. And the amount, they just find it cathartic, quite frankly, because sometimes they, the person that deals with safeguarding in an apprenticeship provider feels quite alone because they haven't got that wraparound support. And the mental health support isn't as robust for apprentices or for adults, I would say, with vulnerabilities or adult. And also it's understanding, you know, the definition of a vulnerable adult. Actually, we need to be a bit more flexible with that definition because we're seeing adults with all of those things I've talked about, you know, the anxieties, the stress, the burnout, that could tilt them into vulnerable, but doesn't necessarily meet the full definition. So um, that's what we're trying to do, kind of train the trainers, practitioner development, sharing practice, finding people that they can come to, bringing groups of them together and just having a good old cathartic 
chat about the barriers and the challenges and and hopefully that can lead to some really positive solutions I've got so many questions um, <laughs> I don't know where to start really but I'm going to start there so firstly you've seen as we have right across the sector a really significant increase in people disclosing need and of course when you've got young people and adults disclosing need you're doing something right because they trust you and they feel they can come forward but meeting that need of course is a very different thing altogether and for instance, if you take a part of your remit does involve FE colleges. So you will know that for a typical college, there isn't that much mental health support externally to be had. So how does that play out with your apprentices and your adults? Is that part of your strategy then that you actually develop your teams so that they deliver mental health or are you developing them so that they recognize mental health and then signpost and three parts of this question of the 63 questions I want to now ask you (laughs) um, when you signpost is that externally is that internally and where does that go where does that pipeline go from you the first step is always knowledge isn't it you know and there is a fear factor that they're going to say the wrong thing or for adult apprentices, you're going to make them feel, you know, like you're talking down to them. So the first step of the ladder is always knowledge. And that is sharing with practitioners, doing some practitioner to practitioner, peer on peer kind of support. You know, we don't train practitioners, you know, apprenticeship tutors and trainers to then go out and deliver mental health support because there's a real fine line between them being able to have that trust in you to disclose something And then you being able to, you know, you are not counsellors, you are not qualified to give a lot of this information. And there is a really fine line and providers really do struggle with that. What's me and what's an external? What we have also tried to do is find where the links are, find where there is support. We've done some buddying up with providers in Kirklees, for example. We had a group of hairdressing providers that were all noticing that their apprentices were needing a lot more of that kind of support around mental health and reintroduction into social situations and coming back into the salons. So we budded them up and they share a resource in being able to go around and support. We've had some providers that have had to bring in full-time kind of counselling posts. But you're, you're right, there is a real lack of kind of dedicated resource for supporting students. It's kind of well, that's your remit as the GFE or as the provider. And the funding is just not there. You know, apprenticeship funding is so, you know, not where it needs to be anyway. There's real lack of recognition for the amount of extra support that providers and colleges put into their apprentices. So part of it is the knowledge and also that sharing. And like I said, that cathartic element of bringing practitioners together. The second bit is then signposting. So we've got a much more broader set of referral so whether that's a face-to-face whether that's an online obviously we worked with providers a lot to switch a lot of their support online during the pandemic and post-pandemic now we have kind of blended teaching methods part of that is supporting businesses businesses tell us that they won't necessarily work with the younger age force because they haven't got the skill set to support them through some of those social anxieties support them through some of those young people anxieties So actually, employers are now turning to training providers more and more to provide that mental health and that well-being support. And there are some examples where, you know, construction businesses have told us that these apprentices are not site ready. We cannot in all morality, faith, put them on site because we don't know if they'll cope. 
which is very different from the lads that they would maybe put on site a few years ago. So what I'd love is to have a pool of mental health trainers that any provider or college could utilise at a local level. You know, it would be completely transparent and completely supportive, but we're not quite there yet. But that's what would be the dream, that there would be, Mm. you know, these localised student-focused or apprentice-focused or adult learner-focused mental health supporters that we could bring in but we're just not there yet or the funding that we would need to be able to bring that resource in is huge. So, you know, we've recognised that the knowledge needs to be improved. We need to reduce the anxieties of tutors and trainers. We need to equip them with having safe space, understanding and where you are in terms of what you report, what you don't report, what you refer, what you don't refer, and then hope that we can kind of self-influence the sector because we are not anywhere near having the amount of mental health support that we need as a sector at local levels. My key strategic aim that that I'm leading for Kirklees College is to establish the whole college, not just my faculty, as trauma-informed and restorative and anti-racist. One of the reasons for that is that if you do create the trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive classroom, if you are a trauma-informed college or organisation, then you can actually reduce the impact of the mental health issues for young people by not triggering them and not provoking them, but also to calm them. So you don't have to be a mental health specialist in order to create a safe environment where the student feels wanted and loved, as I always say, in order for them to learn. But I wanted to, there's a couple of things. Is all of this affecting the student attendance across the piece at either work or learning? Because we've got an issue with attendance right across the FE sector. How is it for you? For apprenticeships, we have seen the decline in you know achievements. We've seen people drop out pre-gateway. And actually, a lot of those um, are through you know stress, anxiety, not necessarily being able to adapt to the new way of working. So I do, I genuinely believe that trauma-informed kind of support and trauma-informed response, I think, needs to be built into teaching standards right now. And every, you know, tutor, trainer, assessor, whatever, needs to have some form. So I think that the teaching standards need to be redefined or at least updated to include trauma-informed support because I do think that that will have a knock-on effect to attendance, punctuality, dropout, and apprentices that are getting to the end of their programme have achieved a ton at the moment, but the amount that aren't getting there that are citing stress and anxiety, and also the kind of stress and anxiety around the increased issues around the cost of living. It's not necessarily a mental health diagnosed issue. It's something that is affecting your well-being, and they are choosing to drop out of their vocational course to go and do a job in Audi or to go and work for Amazon. And there's nothing wrong with those brands, but people are dropping out of apprenticeships, which gives you a vocation for life. This is about sustained employment. This, you know, Apprenticeships are career changers, but people are dropping out because of all of the anxieties and the stress where they can just go and get a job. So I do think with better informed tutors and trainers, with really having the time to understand, but what does that mean for apprentices? You know, in GFE, we get it. You have them 100% of the time. In apprenticeships, we have them 20% of the time. And also, I think trauma-informed support for businesses. I think anybody that has contact with somebody while they are learning needs to understand the trauma-informed approach 
to have those safe space conversations. And at the moment, too many businesses push their mental health needs of their apprentice employees onto the providers without, you know, taking that. So I do think it will reduce dropout rates. It will provide a better supported apprenticeship program or students. And it will just reduce those anxieties and those stresses because it's just, it's fast paced apprenticeships. You go in, you've got two hours with them. You've got to talk about vocation. You've got to talk about literacy, numeracy. You've got to talk about safeguarding and pastoral and staying safe online. And I don't think tutors have the time to think of anything else. Whereas if we took it right back to the beginning and gave them some tutor informed, you know, support, then that just becomes organic, doesn't it? It doesn't think, oh, hang on, I've now got to ask them about their mental health or, oh, hang on, I need to make sure I've said the word well-being. It just becomes a really natural, organic state of teaching and learning. Absolutely. And I think because poverty and disadvantage are recognised forms of trauma, so that in itself, this cost of living crisis um, and, and, you know, that short term solution, which is to go and get a job, which, you know, is part of the reason that our recruitment is in the state that it's in. We, we you know, finding staff and recruiting staff and retaining staff is really, really difficult because of the Amazons and the Aldis and the Littles. So we're giving them lots of free publicity. But you know what I mean? <laughs> they do pay well. I wanted to give you a little bit of reassurance. I've got some good news, which is the Education Training Foundation. We are writing some trauma-informed into the initial teacher training programme. So that should be out at some point. And we are doing that very important piece of work. And I've been doing some training recently where I've said yet again, nobody ever got this, did they, when they were training to go into education? Nobody mentioned these things. So we have to change. The other thing is, apart from we are losing our young people into jobs, and of course, then the funding's methodology changes as you get older and so on, and it makes it uh, more difficult to come back into education in some regards. I want to just go back to something you said about vulnerable adults as well, because I made a note, and, and we have had this for years where we recognise an adult as vulnerable, but in official formal terms, vulnerability being you can't protect yourself, you're not able to know right from wrong, you're not able to understand when you're being exploited. But in actual fact, we have a lot of vulnerable adults, but they don't fall into that safeguarding definition. And therefore, you have to go to the police, you know, around coercive control and rely on the law to protect them. But I just wanted to um, quickly mention about um, transitional safeguarding and a lot of work that's been done going from one age group to another age group and what that means around safeguarding. And maybe we could talk about that as well and that importance of sustaining that safeguarding support going forward. But I did want to ask you about your employers because it's interesting. We've offered a lot of free training to employees that don't seem to take it up that much. And you've just been talking about employees saying mental health problems. We've got enough to do. Go back to your training provider. Is there any way that we can encourage employers to engage with this? Or do you think they just haven't got the time and the resource? Or uh, It's difficult, isn't it? From the apprenticeship side, we're already seeing apprenticeship numbers kind of drop in employers and and that hesitation, particularly to take on the younger age group anyway. We have got some support for businesses where we're offering them a mentoring 
approach that if this is your first apprentice or if this is your first time being a line manager or a mentor, then here's some mentoring tools to equip you. And at the point that they are ready to take on an apprentice, they are actually quite open to that. So that's worked quite well when we wrap it around, you know, that mentoring bit. But I do think that there is still a misconception around who is responsible for apprentices. And also, you you mentioned about vulnerable adults. There are still apprenticeship training providers out there that say, well, I don't need to do safeguarding because they're all adults or they don't fit into that definition of adult. And we did a lot of work during the pandemic and post-pandemic to really get providers to understand that vulnerability isn't linear and you can dip in and out and it's a spiky profile. And there's lots that's happened to us in the last three years and ongoing now that could dip you into kind of vulnerability. And and I think it's, you're doing your learners a disservice if you do not recognise exactly as you said, that there is that transition, there is, you might not fit into the exact definition, but that does not mean your responsibility comes to an end. And I think that there is a lot more work to do with businesses, but also with Sam adult only apprenticeship providers that you have a responsibility to make sure that you have a duty of care, whether they're 16 or 60, and that, you know, vulnerability and that people's mental health is not a linear process. And just because at the start you've signed up the ILR to say no, doesn't mean that that's no for the entirety of their programme. I think there is still a bit of work to do in in that, particularly with apprentices. And I don't know how we we mandate employers to take more responsibility over over mental health and having a more kind of trauma-informed approach to supporting apprentices other than writing it into those commitments, making sure that, you know, we only work with businesses that do have that approach or through offering them some kind of mentoring and, and doing it by stealth you know, while you're there. You're absolutely right. I think that it's really important, isn't it, to really put into your contract, you know, your values and your expectations. And I think sometimes because organisations really want to engage with employees and they need employees, they're a bit worried about overburdening the employer and frightening them off. But at the same time, we do need employers to take some responsibility for the welfare of their staff, which, of course, they do. But when it comes to apprentices, are they a student or are they an employee? Exactly. And whose responsibility is it? And that really does need clarification because, like you say, the apprentice numbers aren't what they should be. We've got a disproportionate number of white apprentices as opposed to black apprentices. You know, there are gaps that need to be looked at around the apprenticeship world um, and the experience. And particularly those with additional needs, you know, learning difficulties, learning disabilities, neurodivergent apprentices, we're seeing a huge decline because the support is not there, the resource is not there, you know, the funding's not there, the business commitment is not there. And it's not a positive picture in a lot of cases. There's loads of providers employees doing wonderful things, don't get me wrong. Of course but there are. I think because there isn't a standard approach for our sector, it allows that mismatch of, well, we don't need to do it or we'll do it a little bit or we'll only do it when they disclose. And I'm trying to encourage providers that you should not be waiting for an incident. You should be having low-level, constant well-being. Like you said, if they were trained in trauma-informed support, that would just be an organic lens that they saw through. We don't wait for incidents, whether they're 16 or 60, you know, and we need to get better at that low level. Oh, hang on a minute. I I always use a phrase with my providers is that if it makes your eyebrow go up or it makes your head tilt a little bit, you're like, oh, hang on a minute. You need to document that. You need to make sure that you've got the knowledge and understanding of how to recognize how that might manifest. 
and not just wait for them to disclose an incident. So I always said, if it makes your head tilt or your eyebrow go up, get it written down or have some kind of knowledge ready for if that does manifest itself. Absolutely, Alex. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the safeguarding duty of care and responsibilities, when you say safeguarding is everybody's responsibility, well, that means everybody's responsibility, not just those who are educators. But in terms of the model that you were just saying there, and when you hear something that might be slightly, it might be that little piece of a jigsaw that makes a bigger picture if you gather the information together and so on. This is about also a bit of a reflection on tokenistic reviewing of apprentices so that you do have your touch points through the year and you say, are you, are you all right? Do you feel safe? Are you respected at work? And you tick the boxes, but you haven't had actually that kind of real, more meaningful, more resonant conversation about what is happening for that young person. And I speak from both the educators and the employer's viewpoints about those reviews becoming more meaningful and carrying more weight than that kind of tick box bureaucracy that you've got to do. Would you agree with that? Honestly, reviews has been my biggest bugbear for you know the, the decades that I've been working in education. But reviews should not be compliance. Safeguarding should not be compliance. Well-being should not be compliance. Therefore, it shouldn't be a tick box. And too many providers or too many, you know, there's too much focus in our sector to fill a box in. I think reviews should be blank pieces of paper. I don't think there should be any boxes on the review at all. And you should just have an open, holistic dialogue about how they're progressing, what new knowledge they've developed, how that's helping them in the workplace. How do they feel about that? How that's helping them in their home life? What's their personal traits that they've developed? How are they feeling about this situation? What do they feel about that situation? And it should be a blank piece of paper where you have an open discussion. It shouldn't be driven by a box because that's taking well-being and progress and reviews and understanding your learners to a compliance level that I don't believe anybody got into education to tick a box. You got into education to change lives. And by this kind of box-driven approach, we're being compliant-driven, not, not well-being and personal development-driven. So I 100% agree that the reviews for apprenticeships are they are driven by we've got to do this as opposed to this is a great thing to do to really understand. And I always say to providers, the first five minutes and the last five minutes are the most important time you spend with your apprentices in my eyes, because in that first five minutes, you're unpacking your stuff and they're getting ready and you're saying, How have you been since the last meeting? What have you been up to in the last week? What have you got coming in the next week? And that's where you're going to find those low levels, those eyebrow raising, those head tilting. Oh, hang on a minute. And those last five minutes, what's coming next? But they're the bits that aren't captured. They're the bits that the providers don't focus on because you're driven by, I must talk to them about vocation. I must talk to them about English or maths or whatever. And, and I do think that we we need to give our tutors more credit for what they do do. But I also think that as a sector, we do need to change our focus on the why we are doing things. We shouldn't be in education to tick boxes. We should be in, the, in education to change lives. And that's I think a little bit missing with with some of the apprenticeship stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Absolutely, Alex. And that brings us full circle on this bit. If we're ever, ever going to come full circle on on something as (laughs) complex and fascinating as this. But it's about then that person who is conducting that blank sheet of paper two way dialogue to truly understand the importance of relational connection and to truly understand the building of the trust, which can take time in order to have then the meaningful dialogue and to become that emotional available adult that that young person or that 60-year-old or the 16-year-old can trust enough to actually have an open dialogue with. 
in particular sometimes about workplace banter and about sexual harassment and about some of the things that apprentices and students doing work experience and indeed employees can experience that employers might think is just normal behaviour. Have you heard of of, uh, cases like that? I always say to providers, but how do you know? Are you asking that question? Are you doing that deep dive? Are you asking, you know, how do you know your tutors are not subject to banter in the workplace, let alone, you know, and your apprentices? How do you know that they are safe walking home? How do you know that they aren't subject to misogynistic comments or, you know, whatever it might be. And I actually wrote a blog around some key questions that apprenticeship providers should have as part of every single dialogue they have with their tutors and their staff about the, yeah, but how do you know? Because if you're always asking, do you feel safe? And do you know where the health and safety box is? And, you know, have you been abused or have you been harassed in the workplace? Too many of the same questions get asked too frequently. So you're never going to unpick, you know, if you ask the same thing, you're always going to get the same result, aren't you? So let's actually look at the questions that we ask. Let's look at ourselves and say, yeah, but how do we know? And I always ask apprentices when I'm speaking to them, you know, do you hear things that you think, oh, I'm not too sure about that. And would you know what to do? And do you feel safe enough to tell your tutor or your, your you know, your workplace mentor or your, you know, or peers or colleagues or whoever it might be? In the vast majority of cases, apprentices aren't shy to tell you what, you know, what they want to tell you. And there have been instances where they've said, yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't actually like that comment and I removed myself from the situation. And I said, well, did you tell anyone? And they said, oh, no, I just took the responsibility to move myself from that situation. So that's a missed opportunity for that training provider to fully support that apprentice, to have a conversation with the employer about workplace appropriateness and, you know, you know, appropriate language. But also, if the apprentice is subject to that, maybe the tutor has been subject to that. So we just need a much more safer space for people to be able to have open dialogue about what makes them feel uncomfortable. And I think we don't do that enough with apprentices because we just assume, well, if there was a problem, they'd go to HR or if there was a problem, they would tell us. And we shouldn't wait when it comes to, you know, apprentices' wellbeing for them to come to us. That's not our responsibility as tutors. We should be going out and finding that. And I think the conversation needs to change around a much more explorative conversation than do you feel safe? Have you been harassed since I last saw you? Because that's not going to give you any anything, anything new. So I do, I do think that's right. Yes, I think apprentices and employees, why, why would they feel any differently, those two groups? When it comes to uh, whistleblowing, people are worried about their jobs and they are worried about the repercussions. So we need to do some reassurance. We've recently done a load of work with our apprentices in engineering and construction, where we actually just said, right, we're going to have you, we're going to get this group and we're going to have them for an hour, an hour and a half and talk to them about these things, workplace banter. We talked about consent and violence against women and girls, and we talked about gangs and grooming and and all sorts of things. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And we realised we don't do enough of this. And they were saying, this is fantastic. We've never, you know, we don't, and we realise we do that to the the full-time students all the time. You know, if I hear one more time, well, they're really, really busy and they've got full days. I'll tell you what, you can find an hour and a half for some personal development when you need to. Absolutely. And uh, we do see that a lot, that apprentices don't get the same level of that support as full-time students. And 
I haven't yet spoken to somebody in engineering or construction when I've talked about the consent that don't recognise that it's important for them to know. And actually, in a lot of cases, they would like to know more from their training provider. It shouldn't take somebody external to come out and speak to them about that. And they get it. They understand the why it's important. But again, there's that fear factor. You know, tutors are petrified to talk about anything that might be outside of the realms of norm. But I keep saying to people, but we're here to challenge the status quo. If we don't change workplace mindset, if we don't change that generational language, then we are not setting our apprentices up for the realities to live in life in modern Britain, because life in modern Britain does should not allow misogynistic comments and banter in the workplace and inappropriate language towards people of different ethnic backgrounds or religious beliefs. And by not challenging it, again, you're doing your students a disservice. And also you've got young apprentices that are taking it on their own back to disengage from that conversation, which is props to them. But some people don't have the skill set or the cognitive ability to be able to separate themselves from what they recognise as not good. So yeah, I think doing more of those opportunities to explore, have an explorative approach to teaching and learning, I think is the best way to get underneath. And also I think students should be in charge of their destiny. And I think they should, and apprentices, they need to tell us also what they would like to learn about and going down the avenue of consent or supporting wellbeing or whatever, you're going to find out a lot more about what the young people are dealing with through having that explorative conversation than we are going on Google and trying to figure it out or, you know, practitioner to practitioners. Absolutely. Stay curious. Stay curious, people. And we're sadly running out of time, but just one quick comment, which is that, you know, we kind of encapsulate a lot of what you've been Mm. saying in culture change. And we do acknowledge that training providers and employers and colleges and any organisation might need support in changing a culture and having that culture shift. But I'd like to, um, apart from thanking you hugely for joining us today, it's been absolutely fascinating. And like I say, not half as long as I'd have liked it to be. I'm going to end coming completely off that and saying to you, (laughs) Alex Miles, How do you look after your own mental health and how do you practice self-care? And what advice would you give to other colleagues in your position, managing directors of very significant uh, organisations about uh, looking after their health care? But what do you do? So I think my approach has changed post-pandemic. I very much struggled with that work-life balance and everything was, yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. I've now really refocused my mindset to, I don't go all over the country anymore. I don't say yes to every conference or every speaking opportunity or every group or forum or board. So I do have a bit more of that balance in some form being active. So I, you know, I swim a couple of times a week because that Sometimes while I'm swimming, I'll say, and breathe, and breathe. You should try and take me out because I'm preparing. If I go before work, I'm preparing myself for meetings and I have to physically tell myself to stop thinking about it. And through doing, you know, the swimming strokes or whatever, that helps. Um, I think surrounding yourself with positive people and surrounding yourself with people that can give you space when you need it, can tell you to wind your neck in when you need to wind your neck in and having a real kind of core, you know, solid group of people. And I also came to me later on in life, but being open about it's okay, it's okay not to be okay, it's okay to feel overwhelmed. And it's quite lonely sometimes doing the job that I do, because I don't don't have necessarily, you know, anyone else to speak to. So it's okay to say that I need help, or 
you know, I need to take this afternoon off. Having that self-worth, I guess, to say, yeah, no. And also this year I've decided that although I say no to work, I'm going to start saying yes to things I wouldn't normally say yes to. So not grandiose things. I did like a dance fit class a few weeks ago. I would never have done that because I find that stuff really awkward normally. I'm reading a book a month. That's what I said yes to, that I'd do a book a month. Going to new places that I'd normally be like, oh, I don't want to go there. So I think, yeah, finding those little things that just, you know, pick you up and surround yourself with positive people. And my husband's really good at stop now, turn your laptop off or, you know, let's go for a walk or, or something to to get me out of the zone or the hole that I'm in <laughs> in terms of work. So, yeah, I think being positive about yourself, surrounding yourself with positive people and being active where you can. And saying no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've both reached that uh, conclusion at very different times. You're much younger than me, uh, but so well done, well done for discovering that uh, that gem a bit earlier than I did. Well, thank you so much, Alex. That's ended on a wonderful note. That's great advice and fantastic to hear that you do practice self care and take it really seriously. So, thanks so much for your time today. I hope to see you soon, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. This programme is delivered by the Association of Colleges, commissioned by the Education and Training Foundation on behalf of the Department for Education.